Well, today is the, well, this season is the 300th anniversary of the hymn, Joy to the World. Most of us, I think, feel that our Christmas isn't complete if we don't sing this song sometime during the Christmas season, right? I know, personally, my favorite worship experience for the entire year is Christmas Eve service, and that has to be a part of that service, or it doesn't seem complete to me. What's interesting is that some argue that this song was never meant to be a Christmas hymn. Isaac Watts authored the text that's wrote from the paraphrase of Psalm 98, which we just read together. It's not based on any of the Christmas narratives that you find in Matthew or Luke, like most of our other Christmas carols. Many argue it's more about the second coming of Christ than the first coming, the birth of Christ. And yet this song is the most published American Christmas hymn in North America. You'll find it in at least 1,387 different hymnals. I personally think there's a reason this song continues to have such staying power. It speaks to our hearts in many ways, and I think there's some special meaning to be found in it. So that's what we're going to do this season of Advent, is pull from this song, think through some of the lyrics that have been written, because Isaac Watts put a lot of thought in putting this paraphrase together. So let's talk about the author just a little bit, and what inspired him to write this hymn. Isaac Watts was a frail, sickly, and a quiet man who was only five feet tall. Isaac Watts took to books almost from infancy. He loved rhyme and verse. As a child, he was reported to use rhymes so often that it drove his parents nuts. One time, being scolded for it, he responded, Oh, Father, do some pity take, and I will no more verses make. I don't know what the result was after that, but I imagine it wasn't good. But Watt's studies went far beyond everyday rhymes. He learned Latin at age four, Greek at age nine, French at age 10, and Hebrew at age 13. And in his teen years, he complained about worship being boring, that the songs sung in church were hard to sing. He described the singing as heartless. Listening to his concerns one day, his father said to him, well, young man, then why don't you give us something better to sing? And so he did. For the next two years, he wrote a hymn a week to produce a prolific number of songs, and they loved them. But Isaac Watts' hymns created some controversy because many in that day in England as well as in France believed that if you weren't singing directly from the scriptures, which the Psalms were, then you weren't singing correctly. To them, it was blasphemy to sing something that is beyond Scripture. Others considered it too worldly, and others thought it was a breath of fresh air. When Watts put his prose together, he interpreted many of the Psalms in light of Christ, in light of the New Testament. In his mind, everything in Scripture pointed to Jesus. He explained his approach to writing hymns in this way. Where the psalmist describes religion by the fear of God, I have often joined faith and love to it. Where he speaks of the pardon of sin through the mercies of God, I rather choose to mention the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God. Where the psalmist promises abundance of wealth and honor and long life, I have changed some of these typical blessings for grace, glory, and life eternal, which are brought to light by the gospel and promised in the New Testament. 
His hymns were a blend of personal reflection, emotional reaction, couched in rich theological convictions. His work brought doctrine and personal experience together. It was taking the old wine of faith and putting new wine into it, and he was giving new life to worship in England. And many of these songs have endured. As a matter of fact, we know that almost 600 different hymns are attributed to Isaac Watts. So I, I thought we'd stop and have a little fun and play a game here today. Uh, I've asked Cindy if she'd sing a uh, play. Well, not sing. We'll let her play instead. <laughs> yeah. Play a bar of the hymn. Let's see if you can guess the title of that hymn because you will be familiar with these. Go ahead, Cindy, with the first one. that one come we that love the lord very good very good last service they knew the tune they just couldn't come up with the title okay next one there we go when i survey the wondrous cross very good okay another one At the cross. Boy, we got some good ones here. That one's a little tricky because there's actually two tunes to that, that hymn. Okay, one more. Oh, God, our help in ages past. Very good. Okay, well, you get the idea. You know a lot of Isaac Watts. He was a very prolific writer. So let's talk about how this particular hymn came together, The Joy to the World. 300 years ago, in 1719, Isaac Watts sat under a tree at the Abney Estate near London and began to compose some poetry based on Psalm 98. He paraphrased the entire psalm actually into two parts. The first appeared in a collection called The Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament. Now that sounds like a real page turner, doesn't it? Joy of the World actually came out of the second part of the paraphrase, verses 4 through 9 of the psalm, entitled The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. But there was a second collaborator of this song that was unknowing. You might have heard of him. Uh, George Frederick Handel. Does that ring a bell to anybody? German-born composer who resided in London, who was a contemporary of Isaac Watts, wrote this little thing called The Messiah. You heard of that thing before? And there was a song called the Alleluia Chorus. Yes, very good. The interesting thing was Handel and Watts never got together on this hymn. Matter of fact, we didn't get his contribution until several years later in America, Boston music edu educator Lowell, Watson, Lowell Mason published his own arrangement of Handel's melodic fragments and named the tune Antioch. And he gave Handel the credit. And that's how this tune got associated with these words. So what we have in Joy to the World is a Hebrew psalm paraphrased by an Englishman, set to the music fragments composed by a German, and then pieced together by American across the Atlantic in the United States. So why does this hymn continue to speak to us? Why does it have such staying power in our Christmas traditions? Now, if you read the history of this hymn, you discover there's an ongoing debate. Just look it up, Google it you'll find a lot of discussion about this, is the question is, did Isaac Watts intend this to be a Christmas hymn? 
Many argue it's more about the second coming of Christ than the first coming of Christ. Now, if you're new to the Christian faith, this whole second coming idea may be foreign to you. It's kind of a strange thing to get your head around. But the idea of the second coming of Christ comes from passages like this one from Matthew that we're about to read, where Jesus spoke of this mysterious figure he called the Son of Man. The common English Bible we're using today uh, uses non-sexist language and calls it the human one. So let me invite you to read this passage with me. In the same way, when you see all these things, you know that the human one is near at the door. I assure you that this generation won't pass away until all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will certainly not pass away. But nobody knows when that day or hour will come, not the heavenly angels and not the Son. Only the Father knows. As it was in the time of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the human one. And all these things is reference to cosmic events that are associated with the end times. Now, the New Testament was written in a time in which eschatology was very popular. You may not have heard that word. Eschatology is the study of end times. It's a branch of theology that's focused upon the final events of history. It tends to break history down into parts, into periods, and has the belief that God has in mind some ending date for history as we know it. In history, eschatology is kind of risen in popularity for a while, and then it dies down and it comes back again, often depending upon the events that are happening in our world. For example, the book of Revelation that's in our New Testament came about, was written between 90 A.D. and 110 A.D., and it came about because the Roman Emperor Diocletian was persecuting Christians all over the Roman Empire. And so this book was written to declare that this evil would not last forever, and that God would end it by bringing in a new heaven and a new earth. You might remember the book, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. came about in the 70s. It became very popular, and people got focused on end times then because we were recovering from the revolutions of the 60s and the Vietnam period, recovering from that as well. And there was just a lot of anxiety going on in our country at that time. Or you might remember the Left Behind series, which focused on the rapture where believers would be lifted up from this world. It became popular because the European Union was coming together, and there was this fear of a one-world government. But the bottom line is the Bible is not clear what Jesus meant when he talked about the coming of the Son of Man or the human one. Some think Jesus' second coming is when he returned as the resurrected Lord. Others focus upon when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. That is the second coming of Christ. Others are spending a lot of time looking for signs in the world that Christ is about to come back very near. Or some people see it as a symbolic statement of hope that evil has a shelf life and that no matter what we're facing in our lives, God will reign. But what is clear what there is no doubt about when you read the New Testament is that God is actively working to bring the kingdom of God into this world. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of God, sometimes the kingdom of heaven. It's another way of saying God's dreams for humanity, life as God intends it. That kingdom of God was ushered in when Jesus was brought to earth as a baby. It was made visible by the life that Jesus lived when he walked on this earth. 
and it was made available when Jesus died and was raised from the dead and now comes to us in the form of the Holy Spirit. Of course, anyone who's living here on earth knows that while the kingdom of God may be a reality, it is not complete. It is not full. There's just too many things in this world as God does not intend them to be. So that means that the kingdom of God is both a present and a future reality. We still have hungry people. We still have people that suffer. We still have refugees. We still have divisions and hatred. We know the world is not as it should be. So the kingdom of God is present and real, but also a future reality. It is not complete. So the Lord has come, and the Lord is yet to come. Our Lord Jesus Christ has come and yet clearly isn't fully here yet. And I don't know if you want to quantify that as the second coming or not, but the reality still exists that we need more Christ in our life. We need more Christ in our world. Now, I'm not sure if it's intentional or not on the part of Isaac Watts when he composed this paraphrase of Psalm 98. But whether he intended to or not, his words seem to kind of solve that tension that two realities, when he says, the Lord is come. And not everybody understands that. You'll find some hymnals actually just go ahead and change it. They just change it to the Lord has come. But his original writings was the Lord is come. And I can't help but wonder if he thinks by this phrase, he's holding together that tension of the kingdom of God is that present reality and the future yet to be reality that's still to come. It shares that affirmation that the Lord has come, and we live with the confidence that the decisive battle has already occurred when Jesus was raised from the cross. God's already won the victory, and the rest is just to be worked out in the details of this world. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I find some hope in that phrase. It kind of reminds me of a practice that, that I've experienced. My, my son-in-law is a basketball fan, too. He lives down in Evansville, and sometimes he's watching the ball game, and I'm watching the ball game, and so we'll text back and forth. Well, there was a time not too long ago, I texted him about a game I thought he'd be interested in. And then he texted back and said, stop. I'm recording the game, and I don't have time to watch it until later. He didn't want me to spoil it and ruin the ending for me. He wanted to watch it as if it was a live event. Now, I'm kind of the opposite, especially teams that I'm – a little emotionally invested with, you know, be it the Colts or the Pacers or the Indiana Hoosiers, I just assume, find out the score and go back and watch it. Maybe it's my high blood pressure, I don't know. But I can enjoy the game so much more when I know they're going to win the game. And I don't obsess over every little mistake they make or every bad call by a referee that I think's a bad call. I can just watch and I can ride the ups and downs, and it's okay. It's going to be okay. They're going to win. That's kind of how it is living as a Christian, isn't it? We know that God is going to win. One way or the other, even though right now it may look bad, even though things may not be pleasant in our life in the moment, we know that the Lord is come, is coming, and has come. All that is so true and very real. And that's what I think Isaac Watts might be trying to tell us. Proclaiming the Lord has come is declaring that even though right now 
life is not what it should be, we know God is on it. God is actively working right now to make things as they should be. God has, no matter what is happening in our lives right now, he has things in his grip. And that's the hope that produces the joy that this song is about. Because Christian joy is not based on what's happening right now. It's not on the good blessings we experience in the moment. It comes from we know that no matter what happens, God has things ultimately in control. The Lord has come. The Lord is still coming. As Isaac Watts says it, joy to the world, the Lord is Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reality, these two truths so, so complete when pulled together. Help us live in that tension of a world that's not where it should be, but yet knowing that you have won the victory and we have the opportunity to participate in living out those results and making them true here on this earth. Prepare us now as we ready our hearts to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion. May we experience that forgiveness. May the blood and the cup become for us your body, your blood of forgiveness. This is a hope and prayer at this time in Christ's name. Amen.